You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is episode 243 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Hands-On Gloves, the all-in-one revolutionary bathing grooming gloves. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today we have a monstrous subject to tackle. We have a documentary, and I have Monty in to talk about it. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month, and I have producer Jen with me today. Hi, Jen. Yay! So oh, you, Jen. you, independent mm-hmm. podcasting woman that you are, zipped on over to the saloon at Flag is Up Farms and did a quick interview with your dad, Monty. Yes. Because you recently were in New York City to watch the mm-hmm. premiere. Was there a red carpet involved? Costuming. How there we that? go, costuming. <laughs> to, to watch <laughs> like, yeah. the premiere of the upco- the newly released, or new to be released, yeah. documentary called The Cowboy and the Queen. Yeah. So for those of us who have been living under a rock, give us oh. kind of an overview of what The Cowboy and the Queen is about. Well, it dad says it's a bit of a misnomer because he doesn't feel like he's the cowboy, but she is the queen. So he calls it a cowboy and the queen. But that's okay. The documentary that everybody needs to go and and help us rah-rah around is The Cowboy and the Queen. And it is done by Andrea Nevins and Graham Clark, the amazing team. And when you saw the credits roll at the end, where are those hundreds of other people? I think it comes into the research, though. This is a heavy and well done researched documentary that makes you laugh and cry. And the the arch story is, as you titled this episode of this podcast, is Parallel Lives Thoughts on the Cowboy and the Queen. What I love about that, Jen, is you nail it in that Monty was growing up with horses on the west coast of the United States, about as far away from England and weather and everything else that you can be. But there's also this young princess growing up in London, really basically during World War II. She is growing up with horses, but she's underground about it. And she's learning about traditional methods, but she has a tutor, mentor, riding instructor who has thoughts about being gentle with horses too. And she really believed that that was a better way to go than what traditional was. And it wasn't until they meet up many years later in 1989 that those parallel thoughts become synchronicity. And she says to Monty, you must go out and tell everybody about this. And I don't think any old cowboy from California ever heard those words before, certainly not since. And so they start a a remarkable 30 plus year relationship with that goal in mind is to share these concepts of nonviolent gentle training, um, but, but with high performance as well. She was one of the top thoroughbred owners in the world when they first met had all the champions. Um, and I, I like to say this is before the shakes gotten involved and got involved and, you know, hollowed out their 747s and starting using those as trailers, you know, <laughs> around the world where a lot of money came into it. And it was very difficult to even tell who was the top owner back then because the brothers, you know, whether it was the Sheikh bin Rashid Al Maktoum or the other one, you know, <laughs> is is the top guy in ownership of they're red horses, but they all were super competitive, and that includes the queen. So it was about gentleness and great training and partnership with your horse, but about high performance as well. Who talked about those things back in the 80s? Nobody. Nobody really did. Uh, there was so much tradition in this. So so a, a very interesting lady made this documentary because she heard about dad's story when she was helping with another documentary called The Queen and Her Corgis. And so there are there's some wonderful scenes about um, the queen's corgis and and how she trained them and how she relied on Monty for some of the training in that too. And um, he, he she had trouble with one in particular that was named Monty. 
that's a true story. And she had named him after dad. Um, and he was he was a little agitator. And so I won't give away the story. No, don't she, give away any, no, no spoilers. No, I'm not no going to give away the documentary. But she did call on him and said, here's what I'm doing. Boom, boom, boom. And he went, oh, no opposite. <laughs> you got to do it the yeah. other way around. And she went, really? Yeah. And guess what? It worked. Yeah. So, and people have seen Monty during the Olympics. Remember when the queen does, when the London Olympics were around? Yeah. And the queen dropped out of the sky in a, helic, in a yeah. parachute? Yeah. yeah. Monty is in that with um, the 007, you know, champion, mm-hmm. the guy that was the 007 at the time. Anyway, you'll see little Monty the Corgi in that. Oh, Monty the Corgi. So if you don't know what we're talking about, just go on and to YouTube and Google 2020, London Olympics opening ceremonies or London Olympics yes. queen. She did a fabulous was little it funny? opening bit. It was, it was so fabulous. Cute. They had some really good opening ceremonies at the London Olympics that year. It was a really good, Indeed. a really good one. Yeah. So this, so this today's show mm-hmm. is you and Monty because you were both at the premiere, right? We watched it. Yep, we, we watched, watched it and chatting about his yeah. his reactions and his thoughts on seeing it for the first time because obviously yes. he's part of the documentary. He was there, but right having lived through the making of a documentary because Glenn was in one that Chris commits. Right. made about podcasting. That's right. Um, living through making it and being part of it and the filming and stuff is a very different experience than watching the finished product. Two yeah, completely different experiences. So I'm really excited to hear this for my, for the first time myself because I wasn't in the room with you because you went off and did it by yourself without me. Thank you very much. Well, the saloon has no windows, you know, very few doors. It's very quiet. So we we wanted to go there and just be by ourselves and, you know, be able to just talk freely about it. But I, I and I wanted this whole episode to be dedicated to it. So um, hence the title on hence that. the title. Well, mm-hmm. we're going to get right to it right after we hear a little bit from the folks at Hands-On Gloves because they are our title sponsor here. And not only do they make amazing grooming gloves, but we really kind of couldn't do the show without them. So listen in and enjoy this interview. Well, I'm sitting here today with Jay Michelson of Hands-On Gloves. And I, we were talking today about the horse that has sensitive skin or the animal that has sensitive skin, Jay. And I I wanted you to help me address that a little bit. I know you've got some features to your products, but I know you know more about it than I do. So what do you do? What do you say to the, the owner that has somebody with sensitive skin? Our gloves are made from surgical grade nitrile. So that makes them chemical resistant, mildew resistant, because you can bathe with them too. They're made to get wet. Um, But across the board, there's no latex in them. So it's great for any animal, any people that have latex issues. There's no latex in it. They're just your hands. And if you have a thin skin horse or dog, they're, they're cats, other animals. There are many animals that don't like to be touched in certain areas. But having the gloves on, it's just your hands. You get immediate feedback if you get to an area of that animal that is sensitive. And you can apply less pressure in those areas, and you can apply more pressure in the other areas. Um, We have professional grooms that work from us. Um, They groom for Olympians across the board, and these guys are phenomenal. And they did a study on mainly thoroughbreds, thin-skinned thoroughbreds, Mm -hmm. and they found out that most people are grooming too light. (laughs) Oh, interesting. They're tickling the the horses and went in and applied just a little more pressure, and the horses loved it. Ah. And that's kind of some of our experience with it. We we have all kinds of animals and experience with that. I think you can throw these in the wash machine. Am I right? You can. Next time you bathe your animals with them, use the gloves. A little bit of soap suds up all the way. And what we do after we bathe our animals with them, we rinse them off, hang them out to dry, and they go back to new. Um, you can throw them in the washing machine. Um, just don't put them in the dryer. And okay. um, just throw them in the washing machine hang them out to dry, and they go back to new. Well, Jay, how do people find out about you? Handsongloves.com. Welcome back, Dad. We've had you on a lot, but this is a pretty special 
episode for us. Um, I, I will give a hint that we will be in New York City next week at a IFC theater in New York City. That's Lower Manhattan and Greenwich Village area. That's not something we're usually dressed for, is it? We're getting kind of fancy dressed up for next week, right? No, I'm not getting dressed up for next week. I was told I could wear my uniform. Well, that's a good point. You get to wear your uniform. And what's that look like? My uniform was chosen by Her Majesty in 1996 at Windsor Castle. Pat was there beside me. And I kept taking my hat off. And um, every time she came over to ask me a question, and her sister was there, Princess Margaret, and the sister was full of questions about what she was watching because we were training horses in a few minutes to accept their first rider and stuff like that. And I kept taking my hat off every time she asked me these questions. And about the third or fourth time that she came over, she said, you know, Monty, not every man has to take off his hat when he's speaking with the queen. And I said, oh, Sorry, I thought you did. I was told that you're supposed to, so I did it. No, don't you see these military fellows around here that guard me, take care of me? They don't take off their hat when they're speaking with the queen. If you're in uniform, you don't have to take off your hat. With that, I looked down the front of me like, <laughs> but I'm not in uniform. And she said, Monty, I dubbed this your uniform. She tapped me on the shoulder and said, Monty, I dubbed this your uniform. So I am going to be in New York in my uniform. In your uniform. That's a good point. They I'm, didn't ask me to come in my uniform, but I said I wanted to. I think they offered for you to wear whatever you wanted to wear, which is appropriate, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, which is going to be fun. And so this documentary has taken a few years, a few miles to get put together. We've done this over COVID. Uh, Andrea Nevins, who is really the inspiration and uh, the maker of this film, has worked on her hands and knees in our container and our garage looking through old footage. And what do you think is the most interesting thing that she dug up for this documentary? Well, I think the most interesting thing is to collectivize the globe in terms of getting it better for horses and other animals and uh, reducing violence in every part of our lives. Um, I think that's the most important thing that comes across in this. Um, there's a lot to be said, and Her Majesty had an extremely long, 96 years or whatever. She had an extremely long life. And she kept busy with that life. And she didn't have a life of her own by any stretch of the imagination. Everything was either for her family or Great Britain. I mean, she was the queen and she made the decisions. And um, she never made enemies. Isn't it amazing how... That one lady went through all of the years of administration of a whole country without making enemies. You just don't find an enemy of the queen. And um, one of the things that Her Majesty was describing to me was her early years with horses. Those early years when she was learning to ride at three, four, and five years of age, exactly the same years that I learned to ride, 10 years after she learned to ride, but the same number of years of age. And at that, she had a riding instructor, and he was leaning toward a nonviolent approach to training. And, of course, the royal family had for generation after generation horses in their family. They rode, all of them did. Obviously, there was a lot of British uh, royalty that 
only had horses. They didn't have cars. Before they cars, didn't have airplanes true. and right. stuff like that. So horses were a big thing. And by golly, all of them would say in those early days, a horse has to know who's boss. And so violence in the training of horses was accepted. It was what you had to do. They were wild animals that needed to be broken. And we use that term. Did you break this horse? Who broke this horse? Is this horse broken yet? Was this a tough horse to break? Did you, you, you heard the term used in England as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely used in England. Um, and every country, it's quebro in Spanish, it's, it's so forth and so on. In different languages, it's still broken. This horse needs to be broken. And I subject to you that my concepts have led me from the early 40s that there's no reason for a horse to be broken. The only reason we have is to partner with the horse so that the horse can help us do things that we were not born with the strength to do. The people of Asia carried their houses around on horses and people couldn't carry the house. And the house was generally made up of thick hides of buffalo-like wild animals that they ate and then they used the hides to make a house. And the whole house, I've been there and I did the study on this. The whole house of hides would be about 250 pounds. And and, and that's that's a big person up on the back and the horses were smaller then and so forth and so on. But the family couldn't carry them around and then they had kids, lots of kids. They didn't have birth control Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the kids learned to ride horses really young. And they're the ones that brought a communication together for horses. The kids were, and the wives, but the guy was out looking to shoot something and make dinner out of it, you know. So this documentary, um, while it doesn't ha- tell the whole story, and, and, and it's impossible to make a documentary tell the whole story, this just would take hours, uh, days to get through it. But it brushes on and collectivizes the actions of coming together with animals and my meeting the queen and telling the queen that in the 1940s, I learned that violence wasn't the answer. And I learned to cause horses to want to do what they do rather than to be forced to do it. Um, the world is changing now, and I'm so sad that the Queen won't get to see it completely changed, and I probably won't either. But at least we know, the Queen and I, that we had the principal directives that took these principles down the line to... Put them in a place where when you get it this far along, it ain't going to turn around. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's better, so it'll be kept in place. That's great. Really, she's a thought leader in her own way. Just as you pointed out, she really has smoothed through generations of presidents and monarchs and other places around the world that are a leadership. And she always got along with all What do you think her secret for getting along with all these people was? She didn't seem like a weak person. Well, if you want my opinion, she took Owen more to heart than she thought she did. Her Um, trainer. Owen was her trainer as a riding instructor Mm -hmm. from the age of three. Her, she was the age of three. He was an adult. And he was fired by the royal family because he went too far, in their opinion, Mm -hmm. 
of namby-pamby sort of training of horses. The queen would be the first one to tell you that. When I finished the first horse she saw me work with, she eased up to me and said, Ooh, Owen was right, you know. Owen was right. And I didn't know who Owen was. Never heard of Owen. And I didn't stand there and look the queen in the eye and say, Who is this Owen guy? She was drifting and talking about Owen. Later, back in the woods of Sandringham, I was with her one whole evening with Prince Philip playing with the dogs on the floor there. And she led me into a discussion with her that she had a guilty conscience and that she believed that she had a guilty conscience when she was 9, 10, and 11 years of age. And there were many times when she thought about squaring up on the authorities of the royal family and saying, this isn't right. Owen is the one that's right. You guys say he shouldn't use a soft bit on a horse. He should use this harsh bit on a horse. And he didn't want to do it. I should have stepped in there. But I was nine years old. I I didn't feel that I had a shot to get him to change anyway. So I let it happen and they fired Owen. Mm -hmm. That was a critical time in the queen going into a state of having a a guilty conscience Mm -hmm. about allowing that to happen, not that she caused it to happen, but allowing it to happen. And when she saw this guy in his 50s, almost 60, a cowboy that was a champion cowboy, talking about being nonviolent with animals, it just struck her so strongly. And it was the next day when she pointed her finger at me and says, there has to be a book Mm. and you have to take this to the world. This is what we need to do. And she she was trying to make up for. That's cool. So so she saw the demonstration and then the next day she thought about it and then brought that to you. Perfect. Well, I'm glad she did. One of the things in the documentary that I think comes through, you have this vintage footage of that day in Windsor Castle doing the very first demonstration you and your khakis, which is interesting, right? And your countryman hat first. Or did you wear a cowboy hat in the very first demonstration? No, it was an English cap. Yeah, a little English cap. And she looks genuinely excited, marching around, talking from one trainer to another just outside your ring. And you'll have to look for that because I think, I don't think people see that in her very often. Yeah, there's two times about that. There was the first day... And I was told, wear an English cap. I was advised by a horseman, if you wear a cowboy hat, you'll be stupid and not know a thing not about it. Not be taken seriously. Not be taken seriously. The second part of that issue is in 1996, was seven years later, when my first book came out, I rode a horse cutting cattle, and she wanted to see that. And I wasn't going to ride a horse cutting cattle with an English cap on. (laughs) So I went both ways. Mm -hmm. And I had my cowboy hat on when we had the cattle in there. And I was riding a a Western saddle and so forth. And I put my English cap on when I did the join up, which seemed to work out fine. But she didn't like it. She said, you don't have to take off your hat when you're speaking to the queen. Because I dubbed this your uniform. (laughs) And so now both of those hats are my uniform. Yeah, that's true. That was the day that that happened. I only remember you in a helmet one time, really. And I think that's when you played Elizabeth Taylor in National Velvet. That's true, yeah. Yeah, and, and just remember, too, that as we go through this day in 1996, I went both ways mm-hmm. with those horses uh, flat out, join up, uh, global kind of join mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. and uh, then the Western thing, both. And that put an envelope around 
the message that she wanted to send out to the world because she was well aware that the Spanish, Portuguese, Mm -hmm. South American communities were generally rank cowboys, Mm -hmm. tough guys, you know, and so forth. And horses had a a very tough time of it, and she wanted that to be changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So, And she also, let's transition a little bit to her asking the BBC to do a documentary about something that you wanted to do because there's some beautiful scenes in that. So hang on for that. Let's, that'll be our, our next chapter. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so proud of what this lady has done with so much time spent getting this story um, on the screen. It's a, a fact that I rode with a Western hat on and a Western saddle and stuff to get this horse, but he was a Mustang and uh, he could go either way and do anything that a rider wanted to do. And uh, to, to get, to get that down and Dr. Miller, Mm -hmm. Dr. Robert Miller is in the documentary as well. And he, he was so helpful because they had to cover this horse's property. In other words, keep it, so that somebody didn't do something that suddenly they had a crippled horse or mm-hmm. the horse was dis- had disappeared or something like that, you know. So there was a lot of effort put into that. And I think that this documentary covers the main parts of, of mm-hmm. that to the extent that I was, I was proud of that, really, mm-hmm. really proud of that. Monty likes to say that the concepts inherent in the language equus are based upon always giving the horse the power of choice. This is why he created his online university. So rehabbing and rehoming racehorses. You want to save them all. We get it. You will love this series with Monty and Jamie Jennings, host of Horses in the Morning and a certified Monty Roberts instructor out of Oklahoma. They work together on retraining ex-racehorses, or off-the-track thoroughbreds, for new purposeful careers. See this series at MontyRobertsUniversity.com. So Andrea Nevins made this documentary that we're talking about that's being premiered in New York City, November 16th, to 2023. Um, but there was a BBC QED documentary made in 1997 and you adopted Shy Boy. And there were some great teaching moments in that. I think it was called Monty Roberts, The Real Life Horse Whisperer at the time the documentary was, when it ultimately was made. Uh, but in sh- she incorporated some of the documentary in this documentary that's called The Cowboy and the Queen. And I thought it was very interesting, the parts that she used in it. Can you tell us a little bit? Because she spoke to Mustang behavior and some of those things that that you had pointed out in this documentary, but she pulled those out purposefully. Oh, yeah, and she, she did a great job with that. Like I say, you could spend a month instead of an hour and a half like it is now. But this took in New Zealand and Australia. Um, these lessons, these these students came from these all over the world. And uh, she particularly chose those pieces that showed that there was a passageway for the world to change to a nonviolent method of training horses. And I was proud of the way she showed it. Mm-hmm. You, in the documentary with Shy Boy, who, by the way, still lives here to this day. He's in his 30th, 30th year, I think you say, in the documentary. And he, he is well into his 30th year now. There were some points that were made about the pressure and release, not not said in those words in the documentary, but there was a lot of um, horsemanship that you used in the making of that documentary. Dr. Miller backs you up on that, and he talks about certain points of how lethal a Mustang can be and how difficult it was when you got to that final moment where you were able to saddle him and ride him back to camp. Yes, he made that clear, and there's no question that those more than a thousand pound animals can kill you with one kick. And 
oftentimes in the life of Equus Cabalus, the horse, they've had to kill predators. And we were a predator. We ate them. We rode them. We had them pulling our loads, etc. So we were a predator. Now the lions and tigers and the wolves and that sort of thing, they were major predators. And the study of behavioral sciences, which got me two doctorates, made it very clear that there was a whole passage there not understood by human beings too well. And as it turns out, when you study it closely, it was understood by the big cats and the big canines better than the, than the humans for the longest time. So the humans knocked them down and did whatever they had to do. I mean, roping the front feet and jerking the animal to the ground with the tripping motion and then piling on top and beating it down was the way that you kept from the horse killing you. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we now need to go way back in mm-hmm. our thinking mm-hmm. and, uh, and change that. Uh, the big cats and the canines, they went for the flank area and they were equipped with teeth that could bite right through the flesh mm-hmm. and they would rip it there. And then the horse would just run, mm-hmm. but the intestines would eject themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they would eventually eat the horse. So horses, they're still needing in their minds to protect themselves mm-hmm. at all times. What I've discovered and what this documentary made clear is that the motions, the body language that you present to them and the lack of anything violent or painful is what changes them overnight. Mm -hmm. Not changes them, but changes them instantly. Like, I mean, my putting a rider on in an average of about 30 minutes of a horse that's never been saddled before or trained in any way is brand new to the human element. But the horse has been waiting for this for 50 million years. And um, this documentary makes that pretty clear. Yeah, it covers a lot of territory, all the way back from you being just born, really showing you performing at four years old in competitions and and then it it goes through World War II and the juxtaposition between your life and the Queen's life, even though she was a bit older, it really was going through the same, well, the whole world was going through World War II, basically. So you, you were at those same crossroads in um, growing up and being influenced by uh, being away from parents. She was away from her parents. A lot of children were sent to the countryside while the parents fought in war. And uh, you were on the road performing and doing stunts and away from your family as well. It talks about the Western United States. But I think the thing that I, I thought interesting is how could somebody watch that documentary, see the process that you had to go through to learn the techniques, to absorb the techniques, then see someone as intelligent and um, in a position of power as Queen Elizabeth, even as a child, she was influential. How could people think that there was anything but right about these concepts? Oh, you could do that easy. Because it makes wrong everything everybody else ever did. And they can't stand it. And you know that the first time I went to Brazil, I received a call here in California coming home. That if I came back to Brazil, I'd be arrested. Yeah, and you're going up against institutions and everything. But if you're just two horsemen sitting around watching this documentary, how could they disagree with that If unless you just went up against their granddaddy or something? Well, we had no documentaries in the no, days when I was going early, so we didn't have that opportunity. But now the documentary, fortunately, makes you sort of step back. And say, oof, maybe so. And they did brush upon, they were judicious about it, but the violence of my father to me. So I was a little horse that couldn't fight back. 
And uh, he broke 72 bones in my body before the age of puberty. According to the new machines that we have now, MRIs and CAT scans and things, they now know that. So I was, I was a horse. So maybe, maybe God set that up so that my brain would then be learning what I want the horses to learn about how we work with them later. And I think if you stop and think about it, if you listen to this that we're doing now, if you listen to that and you go into watching this documentary with the same frame of mind, I think you'll see a lot of value in uh, learning a new way. Wouldn't the, wouldn't the Middle East take a hard look at this if they could really get into the, the facts of life where horses are concerned. Mm-hmm. This does bring in some international interest, like there's scenes with Reagan um, and the Queen when she came out here to Santa Barbara to Rancho Cielo, which is right above us. We can see out your window here. And it brings an international feel to the documentary, which is interesting in that there are a lot of leaders that have been um fond of horses. Uh, Great horsemen are probably not great horsemen. But what do you think about horses in the Middle East? Could that ever lead to some change in their minds? Could that ever change? Could that ever lead to some changes in their minds if they felt In the minds of the horses? Of the Middle Eastern leaders. Wow. I sincerely believe that most all humans are one as intelligent as another. I mean, we have a brain that's far more intelligent than any of the animals that we work with. Yes, I think everybody can learn. This is better. Certainly, if you went to Jerusalem right now and asked what's better, you would definitely get an anti-violent answer out of it. We've made so many mistakes and we've, we have not allowed ourselves to stop and think about a nonviolent approach of training wild animals. We just haven't. But now we are. And, uh, when I went to Brazil last month, my largest audience before going there in 41 countries sent those to those countries by the Queen. My largest audience was 7,000. And they told me when I finished the night in Bajetos, Brazil, that we had over 32,000 people in the stand for the entire process of joining up and putting a rider on a horse. 32,000 people in Brazil, one of the most... Violent countries on earth the first time I went, and they wanted me arrested. Well, they they really were hoping that they could blame you for some of the traditional methodology that was being used on a clinic, but well, you, the, weren't, you weren't putting on. The dragging down of the Brazilian people yes. saying they were wrong yes. was enough to put me in jail. Well, yes, they used that, but... I guess where I'm going is I saw an influence change in the 10 years or so that we've been going to Brazil. You and I have gone down there and done many, not only big event conference kind of things like here in the United States, we had the Equine Affair down there. They have these big events for the associations like the Mangalaga Marchadores and the Margalagas and uh, the Criollos. And we've gone to a lot of those and we've seen the changes. I've seen women increased in the industry. There were very few women when we first started going down there in the industry. But like your four or five or six-year-old body who couldn't do what your father, my grandfather, asked you to do because you're too small to beat up on a horse. I, I was getting the same information from the small women down there that they couldn't do the same thing as the traditional methodologies, whether they were a veterinarian or whether they were a trainer or a barrel racer, they they couldn't be that strong to overpower a thousand pound animal. We've talked about this. But what I'm, I guess my question is, do you think if, do you think there's a possibility if it worked for the queen to be able to see these and change influence over first horses and then people, like now with the horse sense and healing for people and our lead up for 
youth that have been subjected to violence. Do you think we could sneak this documentary into the Middle East and maybe make some influence with some of those horse owners who are also leaders? Yes, I think so. Definitely. Will we? I don't know. Can we in a reasonable length of time? I don't know. But I think we should get our butts in gear and go for it and get these principles going in the Middle East because they're not going now. Now, in Brazil, there was a lot of violence in the families. And they touched on my father's violence here. But you're right. The women just didn't go into the horse industry in Brazil. And now we're down there and they have all sorts of competitions for female riders. And I, after I got home, I saw their championship for barrel racing. And they were almost all, not all, but almost all female riders in this barrel racing thing. And the barrel racing prior to this has been very violent, big whips and yelling and screaming and bashing horses, you know. And I watched the finals, the top 10 horses. This is the finals. We will get a champion out of this. And I couldn't believe what I saw. Years and years and years, decades ago, I developed a non-violent, non-painful whip. It's called a giddy-up whip uh, in my giddy world. Giddy-up rope, yeah. Giddy-up rope, yeah. yeah. Rope. And uh, yeah, not whip, giddy-up rope. But I use a soft cotton rope and I debraid it or dewind it mm -hmm. and then braid it back in a fluffy condition. It's like yarn. Like yarn. And then put a tassel on the end of it and a handle on the other end, a handle just to go over your wrist of the same material. And uh, you can crack a horse across the hip with this and they can barely feel it. But they respond to it because it's the motion of it all and yeah. the encouragement of it all. Exactly. Well, watch this. Ten top ones. The champion and the reserve champion were both carrying my painless whips. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, Non-whips, but uh, the giddy-up rope. And all of the other ones were whipping Cracking with the old, yeah. the old whip. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't get first. And, and now I, I, I want I want this to get to Brazil to congratulate somehow. Uh -huh, I want to congratulate those champions that used the painless. Uh, and it's not it's not so much because we're such good people to go painless. What is it about the whip that slows them down? Well, positive thigmotaxis is one of the most uh, obvious characteristics of a horse's behavior. And horses are positive thigmotaxic, which means they go into pain and not away from pain. We go away from pain, yeah, except in our mouth. And if you think about a child bringing in teeth and their gums are very painful, they want to bite down on a rubber ring. So they go into that and they're positive thigmotaxic. This is part of my university education. Right. And the horse goes into that pain all over their body. Everywhere they hit something, they'll hit it harder the next time. It's incredible to think about this. You sting them with a whip on the backside and it slows them down. Exactly. They think it's going faster because their brain's going faster and they're able to make themselves seem like they're forcing the horse to go faster. But in actual fact, the horse is going slower when you whip him for pain. Yeah, and you've proven that in the racing industry, too. Absolutely. And uh, what we get out of it in the racing industry is the change of leads now. And so it's the hand that you have the whip in. And I'm still criticized in Australia for bringing this to, to fruition because they say, oh, we need our whips and we got to do this and all the guys that put the horses in the starting stalls are going around with buggy whips and stuff. But they'll learn. They'll get beat and they'll learn because the winners are 
rising to the top in the nonviolent world of training horses. Yeah, it allows for the horse to partner with you as opposed to being a non-consensual partner. Non-consensual, yeah. You certainly don't get partnership when you cause your partner pain and confusion. It must be confusing to the flight animal to be hit by somebody who's supposed to be your partner. Yeah, we finally made it a law you can't hit your wife, you know. Yeah, finally. And yet yet you go back through history, and I mean... Oh, it's, it's the same mentality. We've got to change it. So, in short, your take on the documentary? My take on the documentary is uh, I'll wait for the uh, world of uh, viewers to let us know, but it was moving to me. Yeah, you know, if you do this thing, you'll always say, I wish I'd have used this shot or that shot, but this these people did a good job, and and the key issues are brought through in golden form, in my opinion. Yeah, very cool. And the historic photos and video are make it worth it watching to um, actual video of you riding at four or five years old, actual video of the queen with you talking and animated with the, the trainers around her. It's just such a historical slice, I think, about horsemanship and horsemanship in general. Yeah, I'm glad I live in the time that I do because it wouldn't have been known had I um, not been around at this point in time. But we have the machinery now to do the kinds of things that these people have done to put this together. And it's uh, it amazes me, not that I know anything about the machinery involved, mm-hmm. but uh, my word, uh, reaching back to yeah. 1938, 39, yeah. and... Uh, and and copying these things and bringing them forward and putting them in proper uh, alignment uh, is just amazing. Uh, yeah, I st- I still have never worked a, a computer at all. That's and okay. We have plenty of people around you that you know w- wish they knew a little less. Actually, <laughs> it's been yeah. a lot of time. But Graham Clark and Andrea Nevins did the most amazing bunch of of, I would say, research, really, to do this. Yeah. But it's not just your typical historical picture, a documentary kind of thing. It really is very emotive and mm-hmm. touching. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that you could tell us about it today on Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining okay. us. Okay. Thank you for having me. Some people don't think horses and people communicate. We call those people not horse people. Not horse people don't know you and your horse share a unique bond or that your horse knows you know they like your dogs but not so much the barking. At Sentinel Horse Nutrition, we don't knock not horse people. We're too busy focusing on horse people's horses. With extruded nugget feeds for exceptional nutrition and formulas for every need, our wide choice of feeds makes it easy to find the fit for your horse's health. Find theirs at FeedSentinel.com. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place than mine. The magic in the language of the Dear Monty, my horse bobs his head when I ask him to tuck or collect his stride. Can you explain this? Monty's answer. Virtually every time a horse misbehaves from the standpoint of head carriage, it is caused by the rider's hands. Whether we realize it or not, horses can only react to our signals. They just don't act without cause. I suggest the following mouthing procedure be employed. I have found the use of side reins to be the most effective treatment for the behavior you describe. Attach a pair of elastic and leather side reins to a surcingle and allow the horse to toss his head, simply meeting the side reins and stretching the elastics. Normally, horses will stop the head tossing after four or five sessions following these recommendations. I have used this method of mouthing a horse for now well over 50 years and have found it to be the most effective. One should be mindful of the need to gradually tighten the side reins so that slightly more pressure is applied as you work through these exercises. 
It is helpful for one to longline while the side reins are in place, as this action more closely approximates the act of riding the horse. If this causes the head bobbing described, that's wonderful, as it allows the horse to learn while activating the elastics in the side reins. It is important to be patient and make changes very gradually. A change made too abruptly can cause the horse to fight the side reins and might even result in it falling over. Err on the side of caution, but once you have cooperation, then it is fine to increase the tension. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. In November now, we are wrapping up the month, but we have uh, advanced exams. We have Denise Heinlein coming over here, but that is for special people who have passed the course. So um, then to December, we're going to have the Mountain Trail Play Day on the 9th, December 9. We have that going on. And then in January, 8th through 12th, one of Jen's Bucket list items is a gentling wild horse course, five days, 8 through 12. Then we have on the 20th, the Mountain Trail Play Day. On the 27th, we have a Horsemanship 101. That's a one-day event, and it's really fun, and it's really popular, so get in there early. February, 5 through 9. We're going to stay right there. 5 through 9 is the Monty Special Training. So we're filling fast on the gentling wild horse course and the Monty Special Training. Both of them have a lot of the concepts in their fingers. Tips. They're um, a wonderful way to get to know Monty's concepts. And I think, Jen, alert is we're going to have some influencers at the Gentling Wild Horse course in January 8th through 12th, too. Oh, that'll be fun. I know. We'll it's not more a about who they are, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. in upcoming episodes. <laughs> yes. There we go. And you can find all of that and more at MontyRoberts.com. You can call the fine folks at Flag is Up Farms and chat with someone who knows what's going on. 805-688-6288. And if you go to MontyRoberts.com, you're going to find that phone number too, in case you can't remember it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and for details about today's show, yeah. going to go to HorsemanshipRadio.com or MontyRoberts.com. It's all there. You can find links and information about today's topics and guests. We love to have your yeah. feedback. Yeah, we do. Facebook, mm-hmm. Twitter, Instagram. He's in all of them. On Facebook, it's Monty Roberts, the one with a little blue check mark. And on Twitter and Instagram, it's Monty underscore Roberts. Yes, and be sure to visit all the other great shows on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. Many thanks to our sponsors. That is Jay at Hands-On Gloves, MontyRobertsUniversity.com, and Kent Feeds. Happy to have him aboard. And until next time, have many happy horse hours. Thank you.